1969 and Virginia Ann Ginger Scott is 19 years old. Scott had dropped out of William & Mary during her first semester when her mother passed away and moved back to her native town of Charlottesville. But now she was ready to go back to school and she wanted to go to UVA. Only it's 1969 and UVA isn't admitting women yet. So she sued for her admission. The case was Kirstein v. Rector and Visitors of the University of Virginia, which I'll be referring to as the lawsuit for the rest of this episode. Last episode, we talked to people who lived through co-education at UVA, but their experiences happened in a very specific social and legal context that reached far beyond Charlottesville. So, in this episode, we're going to talk about the legal battle over UVA's co-education, but then we're going to zoom way out and discuss the legal fight for women's rights happening throughout the country. This is Gritty Women, and I'm your host, Giovanna de Oliveira. The lawsuit came about when Scott approached a young and inspired lawyer just two years out of UVA's law school named John Lowe. Lowe paired up with the ACLU who helped him put together a class action suit with three other female plaintiffs. The ACLU also got the legal team an iconic civil rights lawyer, Philip J. Hirschkop. Hirschkop had represented the appellants in Loving v. Virginia. This was the landmark Supreme Court case where the court unanimously ruled that laws banning interracial marriage were unconstitutional. Here's Hirschkop arguing before the Supreme Court. We feel the very basic wrong of these statutes is they rob the Negro race of their dignity. And fundamental in the concept of liberty in the 14th Amendment is the dignity of the individual. Because without that, there is no ordered liberty. So Scott had some hotshot lawyers representing her. And the case was successful. The judges ruled that UVA's male-only admissions policy discriminated against the female plaintiffs. The judges wrote, We hold that on the facts of this case, these particular plaintiffs have been, until the entry of the order of the district judge, denied their constitutional right to an education equal with that offered men at Charlottesville and that such discrimination on the basis of sex violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The lawsuit is rightfully celebrated for saying that UVA was in fact discriminating against women. To have a court explicitly say this is a pretty big deal, especially during a time where there wasn't much precedent on sex discrimination. But when it comes to the impact of the lawsuit, some people I interviewed said things like, Coeducation only happened as a result of a lawsuit. And as a student at UVA, I've heard this type of statement over and over that the lawsuit essentially forced UVA to coeducate. But that's not really a completely accurate picture of what happened. Remember from the last episode that UVA had already decided to admit women in 1968 when it released the Woody Committee report. In the lawsuit, the judges actually referenced the Woody Report, and they recognized that UVA already had a deliberate plan in place for admitting women in 1970. So, the judges ruled that UVA discriminated against the female plaintiffs, but at the same time, they dismissed the case as moot. 
What this means in a nutshell is that the judges recognized that the plaintiffs had been discriminated against because they were women, but the way they saw it, the university was already responding to the problem by admitting women that following year. Because ultimately this was a settlement. That's Ann Brown, who you heard from in the last episode. You know, the lawsuit prompted the judge to bring the parties together and say, you know, can't you come up with a plan? But it wasn't a frivolous lawsuit either. It forced UVA to admit significantly more women at a significantly faster pace. The original plan outlined in the Woody Committee report was to phase in 100 female students each year over a 10-year period. The new plan required that UVA admit 450 women in 1970, then 550 in 1971, and then adopt a sex-spied admissions policy beginning on September of 1972. My cohort was 450, 100 of whom were transfers. That's just a much more substantial number. We didn't feel isolated particularly, I guess numerically in absolute terms. When you look at all four years worth of students, we were. But if there had only been a hundred of us, I think it would have changed the character of that experience quite a lot. There was a societal consensus forming that women should be afforded the same opportunities as men, and the law was slowly starting to catch up. And that's what we're going to talk about in the second half of the episode. We're going to leave Charlottesville for a little bit and look at what was happening in the United States Supreme Court and how a new legal environment made co-education a necessity back at UVA. To understand more about the legal developments occurring at this time, I had a conversation with Anne Coughlin, a different Anne than the one you heard from before, who teaches at UVA's law school. So it's 1970, and UVA is, is admitting its first coeducational class. Could you paint a picture of the legal land at this point and what's happening in feminist jurisprudence and sex anti-discrimination law? Yeah, so 1970 is a great year to focus on for those purposes if you situate Ruth Bader Ginsburg in that landscape. And, of course, uh, we need to give many, many people, lots of women and men to credit for what we now think of as the revolution that led to um, the integration of women in public life. But it's fair, I think, to recognize Ginsburg as a sort of giant in the legal field there. And 1970 is right around the time when she's beginning to do some of her most important work on behalf of uh, equal social justice for women. Remember that at this point, many law schools, including UVA, had already co-educated. UVA's law school admitted women in 1920, the same year that the 19th Amendment was ratified and women got the right to vote. This meant that we had a generation of well-educated female lawyers at UVA and across the nation who were working to dismantle sex-based discrimination. There is beginning to be uh, litigation around the country uh, on behalf of women, women who are seeking to strike down formal obstacles to their participation in various kinds of work and obviously in educational institutions. In the run-up to 1970, people are starting to challenge, and obviously women had been challenging that kind of discrimination for a really long time. But Justice Ginsburg graduates from law school in 1959. Um, she has a really hard time getting a job. You know, it's really, really difficult, again, because law firms and, and other uh, places 
just simply didn't hire women as a matter of institutional policy. So she ends up clerking for a judge for a couple of years, then goes on and becomes a law professor. And right around the time that we're talking, she starts focusing in on um, what we now call the litigation that forms the basis for her equal protection revolution, which was a revolution uh, on behalf of of women ending sex discrimination. So in 1971, she's invited to help author a brief in what now is known as the breakthrough case in the equal protection area. So in 1971, the Supreme Court decides for the first time that discrimination against women, because they're women, women being excluded from a particular job, that that's a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. The case is Reed versus Reed. Again, 1971 decision by the United States Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, writes the brief in that case, and then the rest is history. Reed v. Reed was a watershed moment in feminist jurisprudence. The case emerged when a man named Richard Reed died without a will. His parents, Sally Reed and Cecil Reed, who at that point were divorced, both filed to be the administrators of his estate in Idaho. An Idaho statute stated that there are several people equally entitled to be the administrators of an estate males must be preferred to females. This meant that Cecil would automatically become the administrator of his son's estate. Sally Reed thought this was unfair, so she challenged a statute under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and the court unanimously ruled that the Idaho Probate Code arbitrarily favored men and discriminated against women solely on the basis of sex. Obviously, I can see nothing beneficial in the Idaho law, nor can I see anything protective in the Idaho law. It's just a bald-faced discrimination against women. And once that comes up, the door is locked on the woman. In our conversation, Professor Coughlin described coeducation as part of a constitutional moment. Cases like Reed v. Reed, which was decided only one year after coeducation, shows that the lawsuit arose during a time of increased sex anti-discrimination litigation. But there's also another movement that really contributed to this constitutional moment, and that's the civil rights movement. Shortly after noon, Earl Warren, the Chief Justice of the United States, began to read a unanimous opinion of the Supreme Court. Ruling in five cases in which five Negro children sought the right to go to the same schools as white children, the court said, separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. In 1954, the Supreme Court struck down segregation in public schools in the famous case, Brown v. Board of Education. The decision was the result of the NAACP's litigation strategy, which was led by Thurgood Marshall, to slowly dismantle legal segregation. The Civil Rights Movement also led to a congressional response in the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But how does this relate to coeducation? Well, UVA's decision to admit women was part of a larger liberalization that was happening in the law that sought to tackle discrimination against one's immutable characteristics, such as sex and race. 
In the late 60s and early 70s, we see the rise of race-sex analogies and feminist legal reasoning that promote the idea that sex should be a protected classification under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, the same way that race was. Racial anti-discrimination litigation, therefore, served as a blueprint for the feminist legal strategy. In fact, when Justice Ginsburg wrote the amicus brief for Reed v. Reed, she cited a civil rights and feminist leader named Polly Murray as a co-author. And she did this not because Murray actually helped write the brief, but because Murray's ideas were so incredibly influential to the feminist movement that she may as well have written it. Here is Polly Murray speaking at a Harvard Law Forum in 1966. In some ways, I might have been disadvantaged to have been born a Negro in white America, a woman in a man's profession, left-handed in a right-handed world, and I might throw in even an orphan at an early age. But there were certain, certain advantages in this status, which I didn't see then, but I see in retrospect. I therefore came to sex discrimination much later than I came to race discrimination. And having fought the battle of race discrimination, I began to see how integrally these two discriminations were. Since I could not split myself, and since I had to be a unified human being, I decided that it was not I that was wrong, but the society that was wrong. Murray was a black queer woman who experienced both race and gender discrimination in unique ways. Growing up in the Jim Crow era, she clearly experienced racism. But while she was at Howard University, she also faced sexism among her black peers. And she continued to face this sexism when she was denied admission into Harvard Law School because she was a woman. Using race-sex parallels, Murray wished to dismantle what she called Jane Crow, and her work is often considered a precursor to what is now referred to as intersectionality, the theory put forth by Kimberly Crenshaw. In the following clip, you'll hear Justice Ginsburg talk about the impact that Murray had on her work. The 14th Amendment contains my favorite clause of the Constitution, nor shall any state deny any person the equal protection of the laws. Pauli had the idea that we should interpret the text literally. It said any person, not any male person. She wrote this remarkable article called Jane Crow and the Law, where she called attention to all the laws that restricted what women could do. But unlike race discrimination, they were all rationalized as favors for the ladies. For example, women were not permitted to serve on juries. It was thought that would distract them from their responsibility at home. The idea of Jane Crow was to show that classifications dividing the world up that way were not benign. They did not operate benignly in women's favor. Years later, Justice Brennan put it very well. He said, the pedestal on which women were thought to stand, more often than not, turns out to be a cage. Jane Crow and Jim Crow. These two ideas show the relationship between the feminist movement and the civil rights movement. 
In fact, one of Justice Ginsburg's goals throughout her legal career was to get sex discrimination treated the same way as race discrimination under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. At UVA, students, faculty, and administrators also made similar race-sex parallels. UVA administrators began to wonder that if they did not admit women, they would be engaging in the same type of shameful, separate but equal reasoning of decades prior. I will qualify this, though, by saying that we can't really equate the two since the schools created for the separate education of Black students actually were poorly funded and often neglected by government leaders, whereas many women's colleges were well-resourced and afforded their students many privileges. There was another limitation to these race-sex parallels, and that is, they often overlooked the experiences of Black women, the very people at the intersection of the parallel. You have all these racial anti-discrimination laws being used as a blueprint for the feminist movement, but the feminist movement itself mostly worked to benefit white women. So I wondered where black women fell into this conversation. Anne Coughlin talks a little bit about this unique form of discrimination in her area of criminal law. Content warning, Coughlin's response includes a brief discussion of sexual assault. The word that we're using in law and in culture generally to describe the dilemma is intersectionality. Um, If you have an African-American woman, how do we think about her identity? How do we think about her location within these types of lawsuits? I teach criminal law, so I think about sexual assault, right? And so we certainly know that women are vulnerable to sexual assault in ways that men are not. Um, The problem the problem, the tragedy for African-American women is they weren't viewed as being rapable because they were property, right? So they were, the whole purpose of owning the African-American woman was to have uh, property that you could then uh, reproduce, right? And so the the rapes of African-American women weren't even recognized as being rapes. So the tragedy is just devastating, right? Um, it, I mean, it's very tough, obviously, for women generally in the sexual assault area to have their claims disbelieved and disregarded. But at least for white women, there was the possibility that you were the victim of rape, that you were an appropriate subject to bring this claim. You were someone who had chastity. It, it resided in your white womanhoodness. But at least you could you could fall back on that in some cases. But for African-American women, they were just viewed as the objects for this kind of use by the white master. So, and, and, and once again, you know, the, the, the law has changed, cultural views have changed, but some of those stereotypes continue to, mm-hmm. to affect us. And of course, they affect us in the educational sphere as well. So there are many limitations to reasoning from race. But race-sex parallels still played a large role in the co-education debate from a legal and a moral perspective. The Woody Committee study stated that there was a possibility that sex-based discrimination could be considered unconstitutional in the same way that race-based discrimination was. But again, there was no law forcing UVA to co-educate. Insofar as the law was concerned in 1970... You know, there's not a lot of precedent that is available that says that UVA is legally obligated 
to admit women. Um, certainly the zeitgeist of the country was very much in favor of ceasing discrimination against women, you know, cultural sentiment, political perspectives, um, people's personal views were all, you know, trending in the favor, in the direction of we've got it stop doing this. We've got to start admitting women on an equal basis for men. But the law is always slow to catch up. We often think of courts being the place that uh, leads, if you will, the, the, the social justice movements, but courts typically follow. They push on open doors. So there's a lot going on at that time in the world. You have the civil rights movement, you have the women's movement, you have all kinds of anti-war movements, a lot of stuff going on. And the courts are beginning to to catch up. And there is, you know, a legal consensus that UVA and other institutions of higher education, other important public institutions uh, are no longer permitted to discriminate on the basis of sex. But there wasn't a lot of law in the books at that time. And what's really striking when you look at the timeline is how late UVA was. You know, state universities in other southern states made the move to integrate way, way before we did, not just by a decade, but by decades. So when you look at when Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas and North Carolina and South Carolina, we were like half a century behind some of those institutions. So we were very, very late. So certainly the societal pressures are growing, right? Like we're, we're really suddenly the outlier among schools. And the, the Board of Visitors, the administration had to be aware of, you know, our position in the market, if you will. But I, I think probably there's just no doubt that it's fair to say that that litigation, anticipation of litigation, concern about litigation was part of the decision making at the University of Virginia. Remember what I said in the first episode. Coeducation is a story about change. This episode has focused on how the law serves as an avenue of change and reform. If it had not been for the lawsuit, UVA would have only admitted 100 women in 1970, and it would have adopted a sex-blind admissions policy only after 10 years. Think about how such a small number like 100 may have made the first class of women feel more isolated at UVA. And more importantly, what would such a slow and incremental plan say about the university's commitment to women's equality? But we can't just give credit to the legal system. As Anne Coughlin said, the courts are slow to catch up. They push on open doors. So, as much as the law was an avenue of progress, it was also a reflection of existing social change. The politics of the 1960s shifted public opinion to support a society that was more inclusive of others. In the next episode, we will look more closely at these changes in American society. To understand why UVA co-educated when it did, we have to go back to the 60s.
thank you to Ann Brown and Ann Coughlin for their interviews, and to Nathan Moore, general manager at WTJU, who read excerpts from the lawsuit decision and from Reed v. Reed. You also heard the voice of an alumni from the class of 74 who preferred to remain anonymous. A big thank you to Mary Garner McGee, producer and digital audio coordinator at WTJU, for her editing work on this podcast. In this episode, you heard the Supreme Court oral arguments from Loving v. Virginia and Reed v. Reed. This episode also included an NBC News clip from the Brown v. Board decision. Polly Murray's speech at the Harvard Law Forum was provided by the organization Democracy Now! and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's speech about Polly Murray was published by Time Magazine. For further reading, check out UVA Magazine article, Not Without a Fight, The Lawsuit That Got UVA to Coeducate, and Serena Mayeri's book, Reasoning from Race. The music in this episode was McCarthy and Palms Down from Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. Thank you for listening.